Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 43 for the second quarter of July 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is another version of the Planet X story, hence the title of this episode, The Fake Story of Planet X, Part 3. The claim I'm going to talk about this time is the conspiracy theory that Planet X really, really, really is approaching us, despite the evidence I've talked about before that it isn't, but that it's coming up from the South, and so no one can see it unless you're at the South Pole. That's why there's this big international telescope down there, because governments know about it, and they're trying to observe it so that they know when to get into their bunkers, but they don't want you to know because there's not enough room in their bunkers and because they're elitists and they don't like you. Now, this entire claim can be put to rest just by the background information part of this episode, which is why this episode is going to be one of my shortest. I don't even have any coast-to-coast clips handy to play for you, so I'm not even going to subject you to those. But... This is a geometry episode, so you may want to listen to the main segment twice. But trust me, it's short. Now let's assume that we have a fairly flat horizon. Most of you probably have something relatively close to this if you just walk outside. I don't because I happen to live a few miles from the Rocky Mountains. But let's pretend that you're walking outside now and you see a purely flat horizon. Or you're in the middle of the ocean, so it's a completely flat horizon. If you draw a line from due south to due north, that line would span 180 degrees. That's half a circle, which is 360 degrees. Also, I mean, you're drawing a line through the sky as opposed to through the ground. So that number, 180 degrees, is important. 180 degrees, half of a circle or a sphere. Now let's start with something easy to explain without having to give the whole thing away. Say you're at the North Pole on Earth. That's 90 degrees north latitude. If you look straight up into the sky, you're looking at 90 degrees north latitude on the sky, which astronomers happen to call 90 degrees north declination, or positive 90 degrees declination, as opposed to latitude. Astronomers just project Earth's lines of latitude into space to get declination. Now let's say you look to the horizon in one direction. Your horizon from looking straight up is half of that half of a circle. So half of 180 is 90 degrees. Since any direction from the North Pole is south, if you subtract 90 degrees from 90 degrees north declination, you get zero degrees. If you turn around and look at your horizon, you get the same thing, zero degrees. This means that you can see an entire half of the sky from just being at the North Pole on Earth. The sky will appear to rotate around you throughout the night, which can last a really long time at the North Pole, and you'll always see exactly half of it if you have a flat horizon. Now let's move a little bit south where the math gets somewhat harder, but I still don't want to give away the whole thing yet. Now let's say that your latitude happens to be 40 degrees north, which happens to be what mine is. In fact, the 40 degree line of latitude is a mile, or about a kilometer and a half, from where I live. If you look straight up in the sky, 
astronomers would call that 40 degrees north declination. The declination of straight up is always going to be equal to your latitude. So if you're looking straight up, you'll see 40 degrees north. If you look due south on the horizon from looking straight up, again, that's one quarter of a circle, half of 180, which is 90 degrees. That 90 degrees is 90 degrees south of 40 degrees north. Some quick math will tell you that if you project your southern horizon line onto the sky, that's going to be 50 degrees south declination. 40 north minus 90 equals negative 50, which is 50 degrees south, because the south is apparently negative. If you look due north, then we add 90 degrees onto 40 degrees north. Now, if you just do this blindly, if you add 90 to 40, you get 130. But there's no such thing as 130 degrees north or south. You get to 90, and then you turn the other direction. So first, you add 50 to 40 degrees north to get 90 degrees north, the north celestial pole. But if you're looking past the north celestial pole, which happened to be straight up when we were at Earth's north pole, so to look past the north celestial pole by 40 degrees, then you're going to subtract 40 degrees again from 90. So we added 50 to 40 degrees, which was our location. So we added 50 to get to the north celestial pole, 90 degrees, but then we have another 40 to go to get to our horizon. So you go past 90 and start subtracting. So in other words, our northern horizon from 40 degrees north latitude is going to be at 50 degrees north declination. In other words, if you could see the stars for 24 hours a day from your 40 degree latitude location, you would, throughout those 24 hours, be able to see the entire northern hemisphere of the sky, just like when we were at the North Pole, but you can also see down to 40 degrees south declination. I don't like spherical geometry, and I never understood steradian, so let's just say that it's roughly speaking about half of the southern hemisphere that you can see as well. After all, 40 degrees is close to half of 90 degrees. Now true, you can't see the stars for 24 hours a day from 40 degrees latitude unless we undergo a pole shift. That was a previous episode. But over the course of six months, you will be able to see the equivalent of that, the entire sky, due to Earth's rotation around the sun. Now let's go to the equator. If you've been partially able to follow me so far, you probably have an idea of where this is headed at this point. If you are on the equator, that's zero degrees latitude, north or south, it doesn't matter, it's zero. Straight up from you, if you look up in the sky, is the celestial equator. No, that's not where God lives, but that's where astronomers mark zero degrees declination. If you look at your northern horizon from looking straight up, that's 90 degrees north added to zero degrees. So that's 90 degrees north declination, or the north celestial pole is at your northern horizon. If you look toward your southern horizon from looking straight up at the equator, that's 90 degrees south added to zero degrees. So the southern celestial pole is at your southern horizon. What does that mean? That means that if you take a snapshot of the sky at midnight from the equator, you will see exactly half of the northern hemisphere sky 
at exactly half of the southern hemisphere sky. If you wait six months and take another snapshot at midnight of the sky from Earth's equator, then you will see exactly the other half of the northern hemisphere sky and the other half of the southern hemisphere sky. In other words, you can see the entire sky from Earth's equator. On the equinox, either equinox, if you watch the sky from sunset to sunrise, you will be able to see the entire sky from your location over the course of 12 hours. None of it will be missing, assuming you have a flat horizon. Absolutely none of it. If you go south of the equator, and I'm told there are some people who live south of the equator, in fact, I've interviewed one of them on this podcast, and I'll be meeting at least another one of them, hi Trent, Tam, this week, then you will get the same phenomenon that I just talked about from 40 degrees north latitude. You will be able to see the entire southern hemisphere sky from your location, plus some of the northern hemisphere sky. Now at this point, let's go back to the claim that only a telescope at the South Pole on Earth can see the approach of Planet X because Planet X is coming from the Southern Hemisphere sky. Hopefully at this point, I don't need to say anything else. As I said at the beginning, this entire claim can be shown to be bunkum if you just pay attention to the background information. You can see the entire sky from Earth's equator over the course of a single night. You can see the vast majority of the southern sky from the northern hemisphere. But geometry is hard and even harder to explain verbally, as you may have just experienced in the last eight and a half excruciating minutes. As for telescopes, there are professional optical telescope observatories scattered throughout the world. True, the vast majority are in the northern hemisphere in places such as Hawaii, the United States, Arizona, also in the United States, or the Canary Islands, which is Spanish, or Spanish, depending upon how you wish to pronounce it. But there are also several world-class observatories in the Southern Hemisphere, not the least of which are the massive telescope complexes in Chile, near the Atacama Desert that gets rain once every roughly 400 years or so. There are also observatories in that land down under, Australia. In fact, some telescopes were built with this geometry in mind. The twin Gemini telescopes, appropriately named, are placed in Hawaii and Chile for this very reason, and their website prominently states, The Gemini Observatory consists of twin 8.1-meter diameter optical infrared telescopes located on two of the best observing sites on the planet. From their locations on mountains in Hawaii and Chile, Gemini Observatory telescopes can collectively access the entire sky. Now, what about that mysterious international conglomeration building a telescope at the South Pole? While the South Pole Telescope, or SPT for short, is funded by the United States' National Science Foundation with buy-ins from several U.S. universities, which happens to include the one I'm currently at and the one that I got my undergraduate degree from, some universities in England, one in Germany, a U.S. national lab, and the U.S. National Institute for Standards and Technology, which also happens to have an office two miles from where I live. I live at an interesting location. The telescope itself only operates in microwave, 
millimeter wave and sub-millimeter wavelengths, as in not visible, not even infrared, but long, long wavelengths of light. Some of the wavelengths are so long that you'd actually be able to see and measure them with a ruler if you could actually see and measure light in that manner. You can't image planets nor stars at these wavelengths. They'd look like a faint sort of blobbish thing. The purpose of the SPT is to examine big things like the cosmic microwave background radiation, galaxy clusters, and constraining dark energy models. In other words, when you get right down to it, this particular conspiracy theory about a southern hemisphere approach for Planet X that, quote, they, unquote, don't want you to know about, is pretty stupid if you even just start to do a teensy bit of investigation. It's born out of more ignorance and subtlety, unlike some of the other subtle claims that I've talked about, and any amount of information about what's going on on here is going to show you why this particular conspiracy claim is wrong. I didn't happen to see anything in the news this week that relates to an older episode. Well, except that apparently Brooks Agnew, who I've talked about before with Comet Elenine, The Hollow Earth, and Pole Shifts, has somehow, or at least claims to, have managed to pull his North Pole expedition out of the gutter, out of the financially bankrupt gutter, to find the entrance to the Hollow Earth, and he's apparently going to take this expedition within the next few months. I will, of course, update you if I hear anything else, likely that anything else will be on Coast to Coast. Remember that if you happen to see any new discoveries or news articles or whatever that relate to a previous episode, please send them in for me to discuss. This episode's question for Q&A is the final creator one that I've gotten so far, and it comes from Jeff S. from the region around the U.S. Capitol, and he asks, Do craters forming on top of other craters, specifically bigger craters blasting an area with a lot of smaller craters, meaningfully affect the calculation of space age, or does that happen so infrequently that while it's a source of error, it's relatively minor? Craters on top of craters form all the time. I mentioned in episode 41 that I was about to, and now have, submitted a paper age-dating 78 different surfaces on Mars with craters. I actually was dating other craters based on the craters that had formed on top of them. So yes, craters do form on top of other craters. Assuming that you can still see the first crater, then you would just use both of them in the age calculation for the larger surface. But there does come a point where the surface has so many craters that any new crater that forms on it, regardless of diameter, is going to erase an equal number of other craters. So say you have an 8-kilometer diameter crater that forms, well, it's not going to erase necessarily another exactly equal 8-kilometer crater, but it's going to erase roughly the area worth of an 8-kilometer diameter crater. And so at this point in time, no new information can be gathered for crater age dating. We call this saturation, when a surface is so saturated with craters that any new ones forming doesn't affect it. 
we can only assign a minimum age at this point with the craters at that diameter. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In the interest of getting this episode as well as the next episode out and you know written and recorded before I leave for TAM, then I'm going to be bypassing the feedback again this week. There was no puzzler last episode, although I did make a mistake in the answer for the previous, previous, previous episode's puzzler. I corrected said mistake within an hour and posted it to the show notes, Facebook, Twitter, and the SGU boards, but I still got several emails. In fact, more emails about my mistake in the solution than I had gotten as answers for any puzzler other than that particular one. Anyway, the mistake was that I said density needs to be cubed in order to get mass. Length needs to be cubed, yes, but density already has units of length cubed. So the asteroid has anywhere from about one and a half times to five times the density of the comet, but the velocity of the comet is likely to be at least three times that of the asteroid, and with the velocity being squared to get energy, then yes, all other things being equal, the comet will create a bigger crater. I should also actually mention that I was recently reading a paper, and the velocity distribution that I mentioned for Earth, that you'd have an average impact velocity of somewhere around 25 kilometers per second, is also slightly incorrect. The paper that I was reading said that the velocity distribution at Earth has a mean velocity of somewhere around 16 to 18 kilometers per second. Minor change, but again, this would mean even more, likely that the comet would create a larger crater. I'll also note that I got two suggestions for puzzlers. I hadn't gotten any before. It's interesting that when I say I'm going to cancel the segment, I suddenly get suggestions. Not that my intent is to guilt trip anyone or anything. Anyway, thank you to those who sent in ideas, and definitely if you have more or if anyone else has any, please send ideas in for future puzzler episodes. I do tend to try to post the next month's episode list to Facebook, to the Facebook feed for the site or for the podcast, when I sort of have a rough idea of what I'm going to be talking about. So you can get ideas for upcoming episodes from that, or you can get ideas just from general. If you send in a puzzler that has a specific application and you have an idea of a topic that'll go with it, suggest that topic to do. Anywho, this episode... With the main segment on Planet X approaching from the south, I am going to do a puzzler that deals with Planet X approaching from a different direction. One of the pervasive Planet X claims is that it's coming at us from, quote, behind the sun, end quote. This has been claimed for several years, at least since the 2003 Planet X stuff that I'll talk about in a future episode on Nancy Leader. Is it possible, and here's the puzzler question, Is it possible for this to still be true, for a Planet X coming at us from behind the sun for several years, always just next to the sun and showing up in fuzzy photos on YouTube? Why or why not? Try to figure out the answer and send in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. And here I'm already breaking the rule I set last time. Instead of discussing the solution during the next episode, since I'm recording the next episode either later today or tomorrow or at the very latest in two days, and that's not going to be enough time for everyone to send in stuff, 
then I will be discussing the answer in two episodes. So the episode that's scheduled to come out on July 24th. I do have one announcement for this episode. I will be doing my much-anticipated, desired, wanted, and begged-for TAM meetup on Wednesday at 6 o'clock p.m., or at least starting at 6 o'clock p.m., at the Del Mar Lounge, assuming I can find the Del Mar Lounge. I will wear a black t-shirt with fluorescent petroglyphs on it. I will be looking lost and hopeful that someone will come talk with me. I will also probably be the only person there without a drink in his hand, because I don't usually drink alcoholic beverages. I may be briefly on my iPad tweeting that I have arrived, and I will also probably have chocolate as bribes for people to stay longer. That wraps up this topic for the 43rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or tweet me, or Facebook me, or whatever. I read every email, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them as well. If you like this podcast, and I suppose if you don't like this podcast, please write a review, rate it on iTunes, review it on other websites as well, add it to other websites as well, and tell your friends, family, and at least two random internet people you've never met. (laughs) 